Amen. Thank you for the reminder, Carl and Sharon. I'd rather have Jesus than anything else because nothing else is going to last. Amen. In fact, let's go to him. He invites us now. God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, we bow our hearts before you tonight. And we recognize that you are sovereign King over all things that we understand and the infinitely more things that we do not understand at all. God the Son, Jesus Christ, God with skin on, come down to us to reveal the Father so that we might come to You and be released from the penalty of our sin and not dread the day You are coming again. We give You praise. God the Spirit, we invite You among us. We invite You to stir our hearts and to cause us to become those who are hearers of the Word, those who are doers of the Word, so that we will give glory to You now and for all eternity. For Your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. The surest way to get into a fight at any of the ten elementary schools I went to was to say something about somebody else's mama. <laughs> you could tell a kid he stinks. You could tell a kid that he kicks like a girl. You could tell a kid that he's slower than molasses in January in Maine. But you give him a your mama joke, them's fighting words. Yosemite Sam has always been a hero of mine for many reasons, not least of which because he carried two six-shooters that never ran out of ammunition and he could lift up off the ground shooting them. But also because Yosemite Sam could let go a blue streak and not get in trouble. You reckon frecking idiot long-eared galoot! <laughs> I loved Yosemite Sam growing up. So last week, as you remember, we finally made it to Matthew 24. I've been threatening to get there for, well, a little while. And it finally came that we got to this passage that, you know, kind of makes people nervous. What is he going to say about it? What is, how is he going to read it? Because it doesn't matter what your scheme of end times interpretation is, this is the passage that you got to deal with. So, I laid out the best I could in water ski fashion what a historic premillennialist sees Matthew 24 teaching, but I did it through the eyes of a guy who is an A-mill author. Yeah, go figure that one out. And I pointed out the fact that there were at least two other options. Many of you, I think, hold to one that's a dispensational view. And I emphasized several times, and you'll hear me emphasize it again tonight, that this is a perfectly fine, orthodox, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring interpretation that I don't hold. But 
right at the end of the sermon, I threw down a Yo Mama card. Did some of you catch that? Some of you caught it. And I said something to the effect that there is a case that can be made that when Jesus talks about people being left behind, the people who are left behind are the ones who are spared judgment, not those who are swept away in judgment. Yes. I suggested that it may be that when Jesus talks about those who are left, you want to be among those who are left. Wait, 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 wait. Them's fighting words. You can't say that because we've been taught all of our life long that we want to be taken and not left behind. In fact, a multi-million dollar series of 12 volumes was written to make exactly this point. Who am I to question Jerry B. Jenkins? Well, and Tim LaHaye. Well, I am a reader of God's Word and I am one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I could be wrong. But tonight, I propose to give a very brief defense and I'm putting some verses for you to look up on your study notes. And then I'm going to use that as a jumping off point for very briefly to talk about one of the main themes that ends Matthew 24 and goes straight through all of chapter 25. And that's the idea of judgment. All the while, while we talk about two of the uncomfortable things that we don't want to talk about, we are going to remember the big idea of both chapters 24 and 25, and that is you and I need to be prepared for Jesus to win. Because when He will. Amen? Alright. Well, to... Just to get to the matter, we're going to begin where everybody, A-mill, pre-mill, dispensational mill, post-mill, everybody agrees that Jesus is talking about His second coming, starting in verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be left in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, Jesus here in the first couple of verses is emphasizing two big ideas, two two things that we need to capture. Number one, nobody knows when He's coming back. Now, how many of you in this room have seen a book or a lecture or a sermon purporting to tell you an idea of when Jesus is returning? 
right? Yeah, every single one of us has. It's foolishness. You, you, you can't do it. How do I know? Because Jesus says right here, you're not going to know. But then he also stresses in these first couple of verses this idea of judgment sweeping away the wicked. Let's look again. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Angel, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now notice what he says about Noah. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So now he's going to tell us in verse 38, what is the comparison? For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, life's going on just like it is right now. Everybody's doing what they're normally doing. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way. Who was swept away? Those who were taken in judgment were swept away. Who were the ones who were left behind? The eight who were in the ark. Now, the flood came and swept the unrighteous away, and those who were left behind were Noah and his family. Now, the traditional 20th century American evangelical interpretation of this passage is that those who are left behind are those who will actually experience God's judgment because the church is whisked away by the rapture and are spared the great tribulation. And this idea is based in part on another famous passage that deals with this issue. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are, who are right now dead in Christ and, or who will die between now and when Christ returns, they will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, who's left? Those whose hearts are still beating in Christ when Christ returns, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will all be with the Lord. Now let me reiterate. I'm not trying to pick a fight here. I, I'm, I go through the Bible chapter by chapter because then I get to passages I don't want to preach, and this is one that I would skip. But Matthew won't let me. It's making me preach on end times and it's making me preach on judgment. And everyone who honestly reads this, I, I don't, I really, it doesn't bother me which interpretation you come out with. What matters is that you, you lay the Bible in front of you and you say, Lord, help me understand. I don't want you to become a pre historic pre-mill or an ah-mill or a post-mill or anything else just because I say so because then the next guy who speaks better than me will come along and they'll convince you to do something else. And that's folly. Go before the Word of God. Lord, help me understand Your Word and be willing to allow it to change you. Then on issues like this, you're solid. 
But anybody who's willing to do that, anybody who's willing to go before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, teach me, and reads this, will understand that those who are left behind in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 has nothing to do with the rapture. It has to do with those who are in Christ, those who are part of the church, and they are still alive when Christ returns. And those are the people that Paul is talking about who are quote-unquote left. So we see that this particular passage actually doesn't answer the question about the famous phrase being left behind, which we're going to look at again in a moment. Again, though, I would say Paul's passage is a good stab at our big idea from Matthew 24 and 25, which is be prepared for Jesus to win. If I can convince you of one thing, please let it be this. In every way, in every aspect of your life, in every aspect of what you do and say and believe, be prepared for Jesus to win. Now here we come to the famous, the famous passage, starting in verse 40 of Matthew 24. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, if you read these three verses with an open heart, again, Lord, teach me, you have no idea. This passage doesn't tell you who's left behind to judgment or who's left behind for glory. It doesn't say. It just says one's gone, one remains. One's gone, one remains. That's all it says. And then it says right after that, therefore, Pay attention. Now, I want to take an aside here for a second. And what we see here, it is certainly possible. It's entirely within the, the scope of reason and good language ability to understand that what is being spoken of here is a secret rapture. That, that's a, you, it's easy to get to that from this passage. But if we say that, we have another problem because when we just read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what we saw was that it's coming with the shout of an archangel. It's the trumpet of God. And I wish I could have found this quote, but it's from a guy named Leon Morris and I couldn't, so I'll just put it in my words. That Paul may very well be speaking of a secret rapture here, but he sure has gone out of the way to make it seem like it is the most public event of all times. The shout of an archangel. The trumpet of God. That, that doesn't sound secret to me. That sounds like everybody will know it and they will know it from deep in their heart. Now, why am I bringing this up? We did Matthew 24 last week. We should have just gone to Matthew 25 this week. I'm doing it for three reasons. One is because I knew if I said something about you want to be left behind in the Sunday morning service, more of you would come. It didn't work that well, but I got a couple more of you here. That's all right. Um, It seems to me the most important message that we 
need to hear as American evangelicals, and I'm using that phrase on purpose, what we need to hear and what needs to be brought before our eyes is that we are in desperate need to be reminded that God saves through tribulation, not from tribulation. God saves through tribulation, not necessarily from tribulation. As I've said a couple of times, and as Pastor Benji and I were talking earlier this week, it it reminded me, all three of us went to very dispensational schools, and I went to two of them, and it's not where I'm at. So it's not that I've never considered this. But let me give you a little bit of why I say what I say about God saves us through tribulation instead of saving us from tribulation. Now, there are at least two passages in the Bible that seem to indicate God saves us from tribulation. And I'll grant there are probably more. But here are two of them. Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace and they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Now, apparently what this verse is talking about is judgment is coming. The Babylonians are coming. We've already experienced all kinds of bad things and they're coming and you know what? It's not going to be pretty. And so, there were individual righteous men and women in Jerusalem who died natural deaths. And they were spared seeing their city destroyed, wiped out in, in, in an amazingly awful way. So they were spared from that tribulation. Now, there's another verse in 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, again, I think that what this verse is talking about is individuals that the Lord, for His good reason, supports, surrounds, upholds, protects from his or her individual trials. So you say, okay, Pastor Greg, what's your beef? These are two perfectly good verses that seem to say that God saves from tribulation. But it doesn't take a whole lot of thought to go back through biblical and secular history and see that God's people go through the ringer over and over and over again. What happened at the Exodus? They were saved through tribulation, not from it. What happened with the Babylonian captivity? They were saved through tribulation, not from it. What happened to Joseph in his enslavement and his imprisonment? He was saved through tribulation, not from it. What about the centuries of persecuted and martyred Bible-believing and Christ-honoring Christians who were saved through tribulation instead of from it? What about the believers in South Sudan right now who you would have a hard time convincing them they're not in the Great Tribulation? They're not able to buy and sell. Their houses are being destroyed. Their women are being raped. Their children are being enslaved. Who's to say the Great Tribulation isn't happening right here, right now, right at this moment while the church sleeps? 
My friends, my beef with dispensationalism comes to this. Relax. It's all good. When all the bad stuff starts happening, we're gone. Beam me up, Jesus. No intelligent life down here. That is not biblical Christianity. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. That was just me. No, and my friends, my brothers and sisters, hear me, please hear me, because this is, this is really important. Escaping the tribulation is a great idea. You know, I hate pain. I love C.S. Lewis when he writes the book on pain. He writes in his, in his introduction, he says, listen, before we get started, I'm a wuss. You need to know that. I hate pain. I don't want to go through tribulation. I want my children to be spared tribulation. I want my wife and myself to be spared tribulation. But this is what I know. There ain't no... Um, oh, jeez. Right now I'm trying to sing it. Um, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Those are words to remember. And since we're going in groups of two verses, let me give you two verses. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. God knows. God the Son knows that this church is about to suffer. Behold, look, see, pay attention. The devil's about to throw some of you in prison. Lord, save me. I don't want to go to prison. So that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And no, I don't think that's literally 10 days. It might be. But I think that he's just talking about you're going to prison for a long time. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now what's the crown of life? I don't know. I don't know. It's good. You want it. Trust me. It's something you want. So be willing to be faithful unto death even in prison. But second, and you know this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, this light and momentary affliction, children wandering, children sick, your family hurting, no job, all the bad things that happen in your life, this light momentary affliction. Paul, what are you saying? Holy cow, Paul! Give me a break. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, that, them's fighting words to be saying to an author of Scripture, right? And I, I, I would be very careful to say them, but this is what I know. From the perspective of eternity, looking back you will see, oh, oh, how awful these things were. And from that day, we're done. They're gone. Light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is using the best language he could think of. Man, it is worth it. It is worth it. All of it. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now he's talking about from our perspective right now. For the things that are seen are transient. They're vanishing. You want this shiny new toy? Poof! It's gone. Moth and rust will eat it. Thieves will take it away and steal it. Or you'll get too old and you can't use it anymore. And guess what? No matter what, it's gone. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, I don't know who sang it, but it was a song in the 1990s and this group saying, you can't take anything with you but what you can keep in your heart. The only things that you can take with you fit in your heart. Now, Lord Almighty, I do not want to be glib. I look out at some of you and I know some of your stories and it is enough to make me cry. And believe me, for many of you, I have cried. Because we live in an awful place. This is something else I know. For those of us who trust the promises of God for us in Christ, guess what? For those of us who are Bible-believing, Christ-honoring men and women of God, guess what? This is as close to hell as you will ever be. And very soon, it will be a distant memory. Very soon, it will be gone. Very soon, and it won't matter at all. All the people you think you're holding grudges against, I can't wait to give them a piece of my mind when I get there. (laughs) You're going to be laughing at yourself with them. And they're going to be laughing at you and you're going to be laughing at them. I am not the author of this. These, These verses are way above my pay grade. But if you don't like them, take it up with the author. Now I have another reason why I'm bringing up this topic about what it means to be left behind. And again, I very well may be wrong on this subject. And if you say I'm wrong, we'll agree to disagree. You can buy me a cup of coffee and tell me all about it. (laughs) Um, It's important for Bible-believing and Christ-honoring Christians to understand how and why, in many cases, the Bible is written. We, We cannot plumb the depths of this. We cannot comprehend what's going on in God's mind when He is authoring Scripture. But we can, to the extent that He tells us, to the extent that He shows us, we can understand it. And this is an important point that I think is, is, is key to understanding this issue, which I don't really hold very closely to my chest, so that when we get to something that is more important, like salvation by grace through faith, like this, this balance that we maintain between God is absolutely sovereign and we maintain real choice. You know, wow, that is, that's tough, Paul. But, but if we can get this, then we can then hold this a little better. And that's, that's this. I want to talk to you about my theology professor, Ted Miller. 
Ted Miller graduated from DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, the dispensational seminary back in the 1940s. Man, this man loved Jesus. Ted Miller loved God's Word. He had more of God's Word memorized than I've read. That's not exactly true, but you know what I mean. I, you know, I was thinking about him this afternoon. I was thinking, wow, you know, did he ever break open his Bible or did he just say, it's, you know, Ted Miller was such a godly man. I, I say that the way you tell how good a parent is is how well their grandchildren turn out. Well, I was going to seminary with one of his grandchildren. Some of them were already on the mission field and his granddaughter was in my seminary getting ready to go to China herself. This is a man who loved Jesus. And I believe that on this subject, Ted was wrong. I believe that Jesus took for his inspiration for his Olivet Discourse the prophets of the Old Testament rather than Lewis Berry Chafer, who Ted Miller knew and was his professor. Now, I, I really am not going to get into all this. If you want to read more about this, I have some copies of the article that Benji, Pastor Benji originally pointed out to me and then I went and read. And, and if you'd like it, you can go back there and read it. If not, I'll print you off some copies or send you the link. But one of his key arguments is if you go back to the Old Testament prophets, you will find language that is shockingly similar to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, among other places. And so, the, the point that I'm making, the point that this author made, is Jesus is taking from these prophets these images so that you and I can understand what is going on. Because that's what the people who were standing around Jesus were reading themselves. That's what they were looking at. And so, Jesus wants to he, he really does want to communicate. Jesus really does want to say something so that the people around Him will understand. And so, we get this revelation in the New Testament so that we can look back at the Old Testament and interpret what's going on back here in light of what we find out in the New Testament. So, let me, I'm just going to read these passages. I'll let you comment on them unless my tongue starts burning. Then we'll see what happens. Isaiah 4, 3 and 4. Isaiah, remember, is prophesying before the Babylonian captivity. Um, I don't remember exactly what, when this is happening. But he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have wasted away, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodshed stains of Jerusalem in the midst of by a spirit of judgment, and by a spirit of burning. So who is being washed away? Those who are staining the face of Jerusalem. Who is it who remains? Those who are called holy. Zephaniah is even one step clearer. Chapter 3, 11-13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Notice who he's talking to. He's talking to me. He's saying, I'm not going to face judgment for the sins that I have committed. And we find out in the New Testament why. But I will not, you will not be put to shame. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, 
and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people who are humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. Who is swept away? Those who are haughty. Who are left behind? Those who are forgiven and therefore now are humble of heart. Okay, breathe for a second because I've just gone really fast for a long time. I want you to absorb this. And again, I'm not saying you have to agree with me, but I'm making the case that part of our culture, American evangelical culture, is incorrect. And I want us to understand that Jesus is looking back on the Old Testament and He's pulling images out from the Old Testament so that His hearers who were used to the Old Testament could understand what He's saying. And so when He talks about the man who is taken away and the man who remains, or the woman who is taken away and the woman who remains, In those two verses, if that's all you had in front of you, you couldn't tell. There would be no way of telling. Being taken away might be a good thing. Being left behind might be a good thing. Being taken away. But what you see from the Old Testament is this idea that being left behind is what you want. And if we understand, if, if, again, another key point here is if you understand that we understand from the New Testament back to the Old Testament, that will help us clear up a lot of mysteries. The Old Testament was the fountain from which Jesus took the water to give us to drink. And in this case, that drink meant that this image of being left behind means that we are spared judgment through the judgment just as, in fact, Noah was. Now last week, I started off by talking about comfort food. And this afternoon, I had my chili verde proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Had my Coke and my water. And we need... It is not wrong to stay in your comfort zone. But as a friend of mine said, everything in life that you really want is outside of your comfort zone. So be willing to at least look to the left and to the right and see. If for no other reason than to find out that it's just another one of Satan's temptations and you want to help yourself be guarded from it and you want to guard your friends and your family from it. Now, again... I'm I'm being apologetic, probably more so than I need to be or I ought to be, but I would not preach this message on Sunday morning. I I don't think it would be particularly helpful and I think I would unnecessarily offend people by doing it, but you are my family. You come here, you are my family, and I have embarrassed myself up here and you still love me. I don't understand that, but you're, you're hanging in there with me, and I love you, and I know that most of you love me as well, and so that's why I'm willing to take the risk and do this. And the big idea is be prepared for Jesus to win. So let me wrap up this portion and go back to verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 36. 
It says, therefore, stay awake. That's Jesus' big idea. His big idea. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. This whole thing about someone breaking into your house. The point there is, look, You're being told what it is you need to do to be awake. Is that to know exactly when Jesus is coming? No. That's not requisite for your knowledge or mine. It wasn't requisite either for the disciples when Jesus is getting ready to go up to ascend to the throne, to the right hand of the throne of God. Hey, when's all this going to happen, Jesus? Ah, be quiet. Get to work. That's what he said. And then, I love this. I love the image. They're standing there looking up and the angel pops out and says, dude, what are you doing? Get to work. He told you, get to work, get to work. Be prepared for Jesus to win. Be ready. Pay attention. Don't allow all the alluring sparklies of the world draw you away from the truth that all of this will burn up and the only thing that will remain is what you can fit in your heart. And as you are doing this, as you are then paying attention to what is cannot be seen, you will draw others around you as well because they will see, wow, this guy isn't like us. We need to find out what makes her tick so that we, man, she's got something I don't have. Where can I get a piece of this? They need to see men and women who love Jesus and their eternal salvation more than comfort or toys. I was going to get into the end of 24, but I'll save that for next week. Um, And we'll just do the whole thing at once. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, thank You for this opportunity to come before You and to hear a message about being ready, being prepared for You to win. God, I pray that You would prepare us in body and in spirit so that we will share the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to You. Give us grace, Jesus, to be ready for You this week. In Jesus' name. Oh, and Lord, Maranatha, every single person in this room asks that You would come right now. And Lord, we ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming.